0: Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak,
1: And I'm David Windsor.
0: New research suggests that 15 to 20% of the U.S. population is neurodivergent, yet 60% of us don't have a good understanding of what thinking and learning differences are. But our next guest does, Dr. Temple Grandin, is the voice on visual thinking. Her memoir, Thinking in Pictures, broke ground on neurodiversity transforming scientific investigation and public understanding we spoke with her last year when her book visual thinking came out and now we're pleased that she could join us again to talk about her new book different kinds of minds which is a young reader's adaptation of her book visual thinking temple grandin welcome back to the mountain life It's great to be here well some people call it a superpower Some people call it a disability, but I really like to hear the way you describe what autism is.
2: Well, people with autism think differently. And some autistic people are object visualizers who think in photorealistic pictures. Others think in patterns or mathematical mind. And there's also others that think completely verbally. So what happens in autism, you may get an extreme picture thinker, an extreme math thinker, or an extreme word thinker. Most so-called regular people are more even mixtures of different kinds of thinking, but they tend to lean one way or the other, like a bit more visual or a bit more mathematical. But the thing I wanna emphasize is looking at what the different kinds of thinkers can do. And object visualizers like me are good at art, working with animals, because animals don't think in words, mechanical things, and photography. But the things we're not good at is algebra. There's no way to visualize algebra. And I'm concerned that all these algebra requirements are holding us back and preventing us from graduating from high school. But you need visual thinkers like me to keep the infrastructure running, to repair stuff. Now, the second kind of thinkers, is your mathematical mind. These are the ones who program computers, physics, chemistry. It's patterns. They think in patterns instead of pictures. They're your typical degree university-trained engineer. But what that university engineer tends to forget is that the people working in the shop, it's not mere manufacturing, they're inventing stuff, inventing stuff and patenting it. And then you've got the word thinkers, where the people think completely in words. And word thinkers tend to be overly abstract. You might talk about something like an inclusive classroom, but how do you do it? But as a visual thinker, I can visualize four ways to make a classroom inclusive. There are easy things that you can do. For example, get bullying under control. That'd be big number one. Number two, fix the, the um, fluorescent lights and the uh, LED lights that flicker. That's going to cause problems with maybe um, 20% of the people that are different. Then long strings of verbal instructions do not work with any of the different kinds of minds. Give them pilots checklists of the steps being given in long strings of verbal instructions. And then finally, And when I was in third grade, my third grade teacher explained to the children that had disability that wasn't visible like a wheelchair and they needed to be helping me, not torturing me. So those are four easy to implement things you could do.
0: So even in this day and age when we are able to diagnose autism spectrum at a very early age, still you go through this whole diagnosis and then you don't even know which kind of thinker you are. And do we have the adequate tools now that are being employed in elementary schools, especially to figure out which kind of thinker the person, the child with autism
2: has? Well, they don't, they don't seem. they think of the autism strictly as a social issue. Now I'm a big believer with young children. Let's expose them to lots of different things. Art, building things, musical instruments, just all different kinds of things. And then they're going to gravitate towards the things they're good at but I'm concerned today. You've got kids growing up today. who have never used a tool. They've never saw wood. I was exposed to musical instruments. I couldn't figure out how to play them, but another kid's going to take off with musical instruments. you got, uh, you might have a kid who could be very good at math and should be moved ahead in math. But if that kid's not exposed to those higher math books, then that's not going to happen. You get them, uh, too many kids, too many, too much time on devices. I'll tell you something that's driving me crazy just in the last year, get on a plane in the daytime and every single window shade is down in the daytime kids should look out the windows of airplanes i'm sitting in the in a window seat the shades at least halfway open but everybody there is just glued to their devices i've learned a lot looking out the windows of airplanes and if a kid's on their first flight they need a window seat they need to open the shade
1: you struck a chord with me saying that kids don't know how to use a tool. Yes. I'm I'm in the world of construction, and it's a dying breed as far as finding skilled craft labor to come out and do the welding or do run the, the electrical line or the pipe. And so are you seeing any kind of change in society as far as people going to these trade schools and learning well, how to use these tools? There's
2: trade schools coming back, but to do it at the community college is too late. We need to show elementary school kids that tools are fun. I was using a hammer and pliers and screwdriver in second grade, and a little hand saw in fifth grade. And sewing, uh, hand embroidery I was doing in third grade. And in fourth grade, I had a toy sewing machine actually sewed. Uh, We have kids today, they've never made a paper snowflake. They've never made a paper airplane. And when I did a book signing for one of my early books, Calling All Minds, right here, like the kids project book i did calling all minds and it has all little kite projects uh, parachute projects i made as a kid but when i did a book signing for that five years ago i was appalled to find out that 20 to 30 percent of kids in suburban denver had never made a paper airplane
1: that's a shame
2: i think that's a big shame because uh, when we were kids we were out building tree houses building forts building stuff tinkering with stuff kids aren't doing that kind of stuff anymore today
1: so kids are struggling the certain types of kids are struggling and they're not succeeding in these school environments you know i was i struggled in school when growing up and it it does make you feel less than it makes you feel like you're less valuable so what what are these ways of thinking and these patterns and the the things we're trying to bring light to in your book how is this helping kids and how they can think and contribute to society better
2: well i by by one of the things i've done both in the adult version and the kids version is i want to get people aware of different kinds of thinking and and get um, these different kinds of thinking exist and just because the kid can't do algebra doesn't mean they're stupid because i've worked with people that couldn't do algebra they had 20 patents all for mechanical devices used in the food industry and and they were also some of the people i worked with were autistic and a whole bunch of patents, and some of them owned shops. And then if the schools put shop back in, they say, well, the autistic kids can't take shop because of the liability. Well, I worked with two people that were autistic that owned the big shops and a bunch of patents, too.
0: It's so interesting, Temple, how while it may have been something commendable, the push to get everyone into sort of a traditional mainstream university experience. And a lot of the trade programs and the vocational programs, even in high schools, went away because we said, oh, no, we need to, you know, get these kids college ready. And there's some kind of disconnect there. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It, And I think that you know, as long as I've known, and you probably know better than I do in Europe, for example, you get on this track where you're either going to be, you know, the one that goes on to university of the traditional sense, or you're going to be the one that goes on into these Votech kind of tracks. And there is a lot more, I feel like social and personal acceptance and success in these different fields. And I think we're finally coming back around to it, I think, do, do you think?
2: Well, it still a tendency to stick the nose up at tech, but I worked out in these big uh, construction projects and you know, they're building big Cargill plants, big, huge factories, building these things. I was out on these projects. I spent 25 years in heavy construction. And the thing is, if you work with some of these tradespeople, you're talking about really skilled, really intelligent stuff, complicated stuff these people are doing. There's two parts of engineering. There's the clever engineers in the shop. Those are the ones who can't do algebra. And then there's the greed engineers. Now, the degree engineers, the mathematicians, for a big food plant will do boilers and refrigeration. We don't touch that stuff. We don't understand it. But the thing is, you need both kinds of minds. But the problem is, is that the clever engineers are retiring out. They are not getting replaced. We've got a huge issue with skill loss. For example, if you want to build a new poultry plant, you're going to get all the equipment from Holland. And that goes back to the educational system. And we need to be getting kids turned on to making things young. I recently did a construction management conference. And I said, waiting until their community college is too late. We've got to be hooking young kids. That's why I did books like this. Uh, Okay, real little kids, it's going to be paper and cardboard. But get them interested in making things. And in the different kinds of minds, and in the adult version of the book, I talk about you know, it's not problems with a skill loss. And we need these skills. I've talked to business leaders all the time. Said so you like to have water in your building. You'd like heating and air conditioning to work. Would you like to have power in your building? You're going to need the clever engineers who aren't very good at algebra.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So... Last year, you came out with Visual Thinking, and you have adapted that for young readers. That's right. And re- have renamed it. It's called Different Kinds of Minds, A Guide to Your Brain. And, you know, last year when we talked to you, it did seem like you spoke to us mostly about how we need to direct young people. So maybe that book was a little more for the parents. And then this one is appealing well, more to the kids. Well, this book, themselves. the original
2: adult book, also was aiming as a business people. Oh That's yeah. Another very big audience for the adult version. And right. then we're going to make a young version. Now I want to emphasize in the young version, I made sure all the references to the science to show that different kinds of thinking exist are in there. I had to cut the reference list way back. But one of the places I did not cut it back was on the scientific references on the on the object visual visualizer like me who thinks in pictures compared to the mathematical mind who thinks in patterns those references are all in there well, that was not cut out um but basically the summary of the of the other book and we tried to simplify some of the some of the stuff
1: So last time when we spoke with you, one of the fascinating things to me as well is you were going around working with these big corporations, these tech yep, companies that's these, right and you were you were working with people to potentially change the interview process because as you're saying the 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 engineer, who can build something really well probably can't interview really well because you do no, not get a conversation. Well. And, and and
2: what some tech companies are doing is sort of having contests where kids come in, you know, where you can show off their skills. You know, then I mean, robotics is really a great thing. Let's take a high school robotics team. My kind of mind will make the robot, and the mathematicians do the programming, program the
1: computer. So you need so to how are all. these corporations receiving um how are they how is it has the response been are they they starting to change it are they starting to see results what's what's come of this
2: well the the thing is the interview process has to change and then all of this stuff is online I just tell people short circuit this stuff half of all good jobs are through contacts show your kids work off to the right person and then you get in one of the things we've gotten the children's version of this book is I got pictures in it because some people wonder why didn't the adult version have pictures well, the publisher wouldn't let me put pictures in it. They said it, they were too expensive. But this one's got pictures, and of course, I got some my really, really nice drawings in there, because I sold jobs by showing off my drawings. There it is, right there. That's some really nice drawings in here. This version's got pictures.
1: I love that. That was your that was your cattle's uh, That's idea. Right. That was
2: that 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 drawing right there is the drawing that I used to sell Cargill on having me design the front end of every Cargill beef plant in North America. I that's think that's pretty doing special. pretty good for somebody they thought was retarded.
1: I would agree. Yeah. You definitely showed them. Um, what, so on these, on these specific trades, like engineers, doctors, you say that everyone has the the critical mind or a specific mind, their visual thinking, they're working in patterns. Is that the same for every type of person in that, field or is everyone different just as like well, a what human tends being. to
2: happen is the university trained engineer very very high in mathematics mathematics I cannot do Where the clever engineer in the shop sometimes didn't even graduate from high school but they took all these shop classes and they're the ones that can invent all kinds of mechanical devices it's all mechanical devices and some I had a degreed engineer just the other day I was taking me to the airport and this really annoyed me And he said, well, those people in the shop just manufacture." I go, no. I've worked with people in the shop that are inventing original inventions and they're patenting them. And some of these people were definitely undiagnosed autism. I type their name in, put the word patent after their name, all kinds of patents come up. Don't tell me it's just manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I worked with them. new research suggesting that
0: 15 to 20 percent of us in the U.S. have neurodivergent minds and ways of thinking, but most of us don't even understand what that is. You know, autism is is on the rise, but that could be, depending on how you look at the statistics, either it's not on the rise and it's just getting diagnosed more often. I think a
2: lot of it's increased detection um, because I have all these people coming up to me that find out they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. Oh, really? Oh, the yes. Lots of them. Out, yeah. Lots of grandparents. Happens mm-hmm. all the time. And then people diagnosed later in life often find that's relief because now they understand why some of their social life is maybe not the best. On yeah. the other hand, these kids diagnosed early, I'm seeing too many kids aren't learning basic skills like shopping and bank account and saving money, things that I learned in elementary school. everyone say oh you know tommy's got autism we'll do everything for him but that's not not a good thing to be doing but a lot of it's increased detection also they've changed the guidelines over the years they've broadened them okay
0: so in your typical third or fourth grade class in a public school you might have 25 kids in your class and because of the mainstreaming efforts of neurodivergent students, you're all kind of thrown in there together. And it would be interesting to have conversations with teachers to find out how they deal with that. But, you know, there's this word differentiation that you're supposed to figure out how each one of your student learns. And what do you think about that? What do you think about mainstreaming and just having everyone in there together?
2: Well, I want to do it. I was mainstreamed into a normal elementary school. and were small, real small classes. High school was a mess, mainly doing bullying and teasing. It was absolutely horrible. Um, but I don't, you see, the problem is autism's going from Einstein to somebody who can't dress themselves. You see, you have all different levels of severity with all the same name. And I don't want to see a kid that ought to become an engineer or an artist or something like that. I'm... Um, I just uh, put them in some classroom and they do nothing with them. I've talked to one mom. Her kid was in a classroom where they just, they took everybody who had a disability regardless of what it was and stuck them all in this classroom and did nothing with them. That's something I want to avoid. And this is real recent. I just had this lady tell me this just a week ago. Terrible. Whose child is how old, like in elementary school right now? Well, this was a kid that this is all through elementary school and, there was a particular state I think we'll leave the state's name out of it but they just have a really awful program for special ed right. like that's something I don't want to see um but so I was mainstreamed in a normal class so I went to birthday parties with the kids in the neighborhood I was part of the neighborhood and if I hadn't been mainstreamed I would have been gone to some other school across town and so I was very lucky to be mainstreamed in elementary school but it was a real small elementary school There it, it was 12 kids in the class, not 25.
1: Simple, do you think on, on a federal level, we we've had a lot of trouble with our education system over the last many decades. And do you think that there, what, what would be the first step if you were to take charge and go in to change the, the way that we introduce individuals to different types of skills?
2: Well, I put all the hands on classes back in like my little school. We had wood shop. This is elementary school. Wood shop made things with clay, um, art class, sewing class, cooking class. This is elementary school. We were doing all of these things. And this makes an opportunity for a lot of these kids that think differently to have something they can excel in. I loved all the, especially uh, woodworking, art, and sewing. I loved those classes. It's making things. I was really big into making things. And then when you grow up, well, the clay you played with in elementary school is formed concrete when you grow up. Concrete's just grown-up clay.
1: <laughs> and a lot more permanent.
2: Yeah, a lot more permanent. Actually more fun.
1: <laughs> is is the medical research on autism, is it is it gaining traction a friend of mine a long time ago was an investor in a product where it was a powder that they were p- going to put on food and they were getting a- approval through the FDA and I don't I don't fully know what happened with it but is there traction on medical research and for lack of a better word curing autism
2: well I don't think you're going to want to cure uh, if you cure autism then what will happen to the next Einstein
1: there you go
2: yeah you see that you see that, See, a a mild case of autism can give you some advantages. You see, the milder versions are just personality variant. Then you can get into very severe. But some of the non-speaking individuals can learn to type independently. And they actually have kind of a locked-in syndrome where they've got a good brain in there, but they uh, can't control their movements, uh, and they can't speak, but they can learn to type on an iPad. And it's important to use something like a tablet because the print appears next to the virtual keyboard. Use a laptop, the print appears on the top of the screen. They can't make the attention shift. I'm a big proponent of working on typing. If the kid's like six and they can't talk, let's work on typing. But prior to age six, you got to if they're not talking, you've got to give them a way to communicate. Sign language, picture board, communication device. Because a lot of bad behavior goes back to not being able to communicate, which is very, very frustrating.
0: Although we call it autism, autism spectrum disorder, so spectrum suggests that there are many different levels. That's we true. really only call it a couple of things. You know, if it's if it's very mild, we call it Asperger's. We, we call it autism. We call it nonverbal maybe. But it feels to me like we need to be, I don't know, coming up with more levels showing
2: that we're, we are learning. Well, the other thing on the around. levels, I I was very severe when I was a child. Now, the one thing that showed up that was good with me is I did not have epilepsy if there's no signs of epilepsy in the two or three-year-old that's usually a good sign but you can't really tell when the kids are three even if they're really severe looking how they're going to come out this is why it's really important to do early education to teach speech turn taking at games and skills like dressing brushing their teeth using a spoon to eat with just just basic um basic skills and that was done with me you know, the early education is really important for autistic three year olds. So I tell parents if you have a three year old that's not talking, you got to start working with them. Uh, rule out deafness, that's got to be ruled out. Rule out a physical problem with the throat or the mouth. And if you're in a low income situation, get some grandmothers to work with the kid. Start engaging the kid in little taking turn games. That's really mm. important to teach them that.
0: Well, it's interesting with you, as you said, that. You, you were severely autistic and you, I remember last time we talked to you, your, your mom is just was just an amazing woman who was such an advocate for you. And so you did start working on these things very early. Oh yeah, I had
2: very, very good early education.
0: And you look at you now, I mean, you're on book tour, you're writing books, you're talking to audiences. A friend of mine saw you speak a couple of weeks ago in Colorado and was so excited and you know, this is all very social, you know, your social skills. you've well, just I've
2: learned, I've learned, you know, like business social, but I can tell you, I, I don't do bar scene or anything like that. And a there's, a kind of, there's a kind <laughs> of chit chat social, uh, but I'm out there, you know, kind of figuring now at the age of 76, I want to help the, the kids that are different be successful. It makes me so happy when a mom comes up to me and says, um, uh, Oh, I read some of your stuff 20 years ago. My kid's in college and had bought a house and got a job. And that makes me really happy. If some of the things I did help that kid achieve that. But on the other hand, I'm not, most of my friends still have shared interests. I'm not, uh, you get in these kind of conversations where people are chatting back and forth really quickly. I can't even follow those conversations. I'm not very good at that.
1: So how do you handle the situations when you're in these corporate settings, when you're helping a group of individuals to come up with a plan and and figure the next roadmap in their corporation? How are you handling those types of conversations in in that chit-chat environment?
2: Well, it's not that chit-chatty, actually. When you're in a real serious project meeting, it's not chit-chat.
1: So... Temple, what's the what's the biggest takeaway you want uh the readers, the young individuals to take out of this book? What what's your hope that when Well, when I they...
2: hope that young readers that read different kinds of minds are going to get good at something, you know, whether it be uh building things, mechanics, art, mathematics, um uh, computer programming, um something involving with words, and get out and have a have a great life. And I want to encourage educators too to Get kids doing more things. You know, unfortunately, we've gotten too much into just got to pass the tests, but teach people there are different kinds of minds and we need their skills. Mm.
0: The cover of your book looks like an MC Escher.
2: Yeah, I really like the cover of the book. Yes, it does remind me of of an Escher. Yep, I thought uh, the artist did a really nice job on that.
0: Right, and no doubt you had to approve that. Oh, I did, yeah. Yeah, so you work, you worked together with the artist.
2: Well, they came up with some different designs, and some of them I liked better than others. And uh, that uh, I just thought that was really clever. Kids would like, you know, kind of look at that. You got a crane picking up one of the walls. You've got a um, music score on one of the walls, a plant, a cat, a table.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's so great. Um, before we let you go, Temple, I just wanted to hear you give our listeners parents who, you know, just are at wit's end trying to get their kids off of computer games. That's all they do. And even, you know, into their 20s, sitting in the basement playing video games. Well, this
2: seems to be, they seem to be two paths the adults are doing. Get out and get a life, or they're ending up in the basement. they playing video games or just getting on all kinds of stuff online that's not all that great and first of all you have to wean them slowly and give choices and one of the things that's been very successful has been auto mechanics and there's been five or six young adults that have been weaned off of uh, off of uh, video games and they are now fixing cars and they found out that fixing the cars was more interesting than the video games and Danny Coombs in Denver runs a program called tact T-A-C-T he's teaching young autistic adults to fix cars And the car dealerships are hiring them because they need people to fix cars. So you have to replace the video games with something else. Mm -hmm. And for the visual picture thinkers like me, working with mechanical things is often a good way to go. Or maybe for a mathematically minded one, get them some real high-end math books. You have to replace it with something else and you do it gradually. You do it gradually. another thing that's helped me and i described this in my old book on uh, thinking in pictures is i've been taking antidepressant medication for 40 years so that stopped constant really debilitating anxiety that's often made with these medications is too high a dose and then you get agitation and insomnia even though this is 27 years old that information is still true the medications basically have not changed
0: Very interesting. Well, our guest is Dr. Temple Grandin, and her new book is Different Kinds of Minds. It's a young reader's adaptation of last year's New York Times bestseller, Visual Thinking. Temple Grandin, thank you so much for joining us again on The Mountain Life.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to sign off and leave the meeting right now.
0: Temple Grandin, she's so great. Stay with us. You're listening to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City. We'll be back after these words to talk about the fine art of being grateful when we return. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak,
1: And I'm David Windsor.
0: Well, Thanksgiving is just around the corner and it's a time when we all think about what we're grateful for. It's a good practice year round, but somehow many of us don't bring this conscious practice around the concept of being grateful. Others of us do, like our next guest, Christy Nelson. Christy is the executive director of a network for grateful living, and she spent more than 30 years in nonprofit leadership, development, and consulting, working at the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine and many other ventures. Mm-hmm. Her experience with stage four cancer led her to this place somehow, at least in part. And it's what she writes about in her new book, Wake Up Grateful, the transformative practice of taking nothing for granted. Christy Nelson, welcome to The Mountain Life.
3: Thank you, I love being part of The Mountain Life. Thanks for
0: having me. Well, let's start back before you were diagnosed with stage four cancer do you cons- did you consider yourself a grateful person
3: i was not ungrateful <laughs> yeah. i was i was grateful in the in the typical way that i think we experience gratitude right which is i was certainly grateful when good things happened and when people did kind things to me and i was never unappreciative and walked around life like oh i deserve this and i deserve that So certainly I had a lot of gratitude, but I also had what we all typically have, which is at 32 years old, a lot of expectations of life, a lot of expectations about how life should go, um, a lot of sense of kind of entitlement to a future. And so I had all these big plans and all my friends were doing things that, you know, implied that they had a long life in which to unfold all those plans. And then that was all suddenly kind of cut away for me and I had to figure out how to re-navigate my orientation to life because all those things were stripped away you know and suddenly you can't have expectations anymore and you can't feel like a big long life is going to fold out in front of you so all you can fulfill all your dreams and wishes you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting taking it from that standpoint of you know, we, we are so conditioned and we're raised to, you know, look towards accomplishment and planning and goals and even taking it the one step further is that <clears throat> entitlement to a certain degree. And it's funny how that really contrasts with gratitude and gratefulness in such a way that if we're not going, you know, typically when we don't have stage four cancer and are just becoming thankful for waking up every day alive, yeah. we look, you know, it's how we look at things really pessimistically. If things, if if we're not able to meet those goals or if something impedes our progress, yes. then we're so busy being, you know, irritated, angry. Yeah, and complaint yeah exactly with
3: life that's
0: right in complaint that's exactly the word i was looking for so that's yeah isn't that interesting i never thought about it in that way
3: yeah and i think that you know what when we take life for granted right and i don't i don't want to use this term for granted too much but boy it's a good one um we learn a lot i think from looking at what we do take for granted but when we take time for granted and life for granted we think we've got this big long trajectory out in front of us to make good, right? And to, well, I'll be grateful when, and I'll be happy when, and you know, I'll feel successful when. And what happens if that gets truncated? Like what happens if all of a sudden you realize, wow, I can't take time for granted. Uh, all these things that I thought I can, oh, I can forgive that person when, I can be grateful for that person you know, in the future. And when that gets taken away, suddenly it's like, I really felt like I got to get very busy appreciating life because my timeframe shrunk to a day, you know, I can expect this day. And so what do I do with this day? What do I do with this moment? And when your time frame shrinks in a way, it's, that's what really woke me up That's what woke me up to, wow, life is really precious. And I want to figure out how to use it and make use of this every moment and every day that I have, because I have no idea how many I'm going to have.
1: That kind of led into my next question, because you're right. We all do have this sense of I will do it X when. And when I'm ready, when I have more money, when I'm married, when I have kids, when the kids are out of school, whatever it is, we all have a timeline. And the biggest one being New Year's. Everyone has, once right. New Year's comes, I'll get back in shape. I'll I'll apply for the new job, whatever it is. And so I'm curious, you know, you said it was time that shrunk down, but what was that aha moment for you in your young 30s where you just realized, oh my gosh, I've been doing this all wrong. There's so much more out there that's important to life than what I've been pursuing. Hmm.
3: Well, I was, um, the the time period from when I first got sick to when I finished treatment for stage four cancer was 18 months. And that's a long time. Like I was basically in hospitals and I was in treatment and it, it, things were really rough in those 18 months. Um, and then when I got out of the hospital, I was able to all of a sudden say, this was a big aha. It was like, I have no idea how many days I have left or months or years, and yet look at how much I missed before. Look at how extraordinary, like every dapple of sunlight, every tree, every bird, every ability to move through the world, like the fact that my legs moved, you know, the things that I had taken for granted before, because I—I the cancer metastasized to my spine. So I actually couldn't walk for a pretty long time and I had to get rebuilt with rods and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was a yoga practitioner before I was a runner. So it wasn't like I, you know, but I had taken it for granted that I could do all those things. So the big aha was, okay, here I am. And I'm compromised in a whole variety of ways that I wasn't before. And I don't know how long I'm going to live, but man, I want to be really alive for the moments that I have. And it took for me, I think the recognition that Life isn't permanent, that none of us know, none of us know how long we're gonna have. It's a great mystery of all life, you know, in some ways. And even though that sounds terrifying and awful, when you kind of come out the door into the sunlight and you say, whoa, I've got today, and I have no idea what else I'm gonna have, it brought me to life in a way that I could never have anticipated. It it brought me alive, and and it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary.
1: I believe it it's got to be a freeing feeling to just realize that you can live in today's present moment and nothing else matters other than just enjoying today and you you have your your list of grateful living in the real world and one that really spoke to me was appreciating our emotions and everyone obviously has emotions and there's there's bad emotions that really trigger you and get you anxious and mad and so how how do you work with individuals to sit in that moment, to, to really soak in that emotion of anger or despair, whatever it is. And how do you, how do you help individuals sit with that, appreciate it and move forward?
3: Mm. Thank you. Great question. So it is one of the big things is I think, first of all, we've got things organized, you know, like the bad and the good, and and it's it's like oh god, I'm feeling really scared. You know, this is bad. I don't want to feel this anymore. And yet, my experience is that what we resist persists. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about is how can we befriend our emotional experiences versus bemoan and begrudge. Right, so one is kind of this, I love bemoaning. It's kind of like, oh, if only this wasn't happening. And the other is begrudge, which is really resisting. And being, if you're angry that you're angry, it's only gonna make it worse. If, you know, so if you're pissed that you're having a hard day and you're upset about it, it's like, instead of being able to figure out how you can be gentle with ourselves, like how can we embrace the fact that we have, we all have big feelings and man, have we organize them into bad and good and we don't want the, ba- the bad ones and we want the good ones. And yet I think there's a way that, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if someone says, oh, that's normal, like, oh, I feel that way too. All of a sudden it kind of dissipates. It's like, if we could figure out how to normalize the things that we feel that we think we shouldn't feel, they tend to go away really quickly sometimes instead of nothing like judgment to make stuff stick around, honestly,
0: in my experience. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with author Christy Nelson. She has written a book called Wake Up Grateful. It's the transformative practice of taking nothing for granted. There's a lot of self-judgment that goes along with that as well. Sure. Um, observing yourself in certain situations. Just this morning, I and I had been, you know, looking at your book and kind of letting it sink in, but we're going on a trip. My husband's rollerboard bag is bigger than mine. And I asked him if we could switch because he takes way fewer things on a vacation than I do. And he was kind of hemming and hawing about it. And so I packed my bag. I was already, I'd zipped it up and he goes, oh, I just, I just emptied my, my rollerboard for you to use. And instead of being grateful, mm-hmm. I was really annoyed and irritated that I had already packed my bag. And now the His bag is empty, which is what I wanted to be, to begin with. And I reflected and looked at myself, kind of held up that mirror to myself about my own irritation at that. And then I just let it go. Of course, I had just been reading your book, you know, so, but isn't it interesting when we observe ourselves being, you know, either irritable or petty or whatever it is, and instead flip things around and yeah thank you wonderful husband for giving (laughs) me your larger bag you're so great thanks for taking the time and and that doesn't happen easily
3: lynn i mean this is this is stuff that is a big you know we've got heavy duty patterns that have been laid in for a long time in life and i get that you know disappointment and geez you could have figured that out sooner or whatever and so those things are so normal but just i think there is something which in that moment I wrote the whole book, I think, because I think gaining perspective is the most important thing. And, you know, nothing like a mountaintop perspective. You know, when you get to the top of a mountain, when you're on a plane, when you're by the ocean, and you can see the vastness, all of a sudden the things that you thought were big become small. And the ways in which you thought you were small become bigger, you know, in some ways in the world, how we belong in the world and all that stuff. And it's really perspective enhancement. And so all of a sudden to realize, whoa, this is actually, it's a different way to hold it. It's like, here I am huffing and puffing about a roller bag when I'm so lucky I've got one. Matter of fact, we've got two as a couple. And matter of fact, we're able to go on a trip, which is pretty amazing. And here I am and like, and I've got a husband at all. Like, I mean, so it's kind of like, it's looking at the glass, not just the glass half full or the glass half empty, because I do say in the book, it's really about having a glass at all. We get really hung up. whether we've got enough or not you know all the in and out and the optimism and pessimism of what's in the glass what if the glass was enough like we rarely kind of go whoa perspective i'm here i've got all of this to celebrate and i'm forgetting it so i can switch that in a moment
0: yeah it really only takes a moment too and i'm glad i came clean with that silly story but thanks for sharing i know that i know that we all so what's the difference between you distinguish between gratitude and gratefulness mm-hmm. what is that yeah
3: gratitude so gratitude waits for something good to happen we really hang our gratitude hat on I got what I wanted yay I'm grateful you know and that's kind of how we're taught it when we're young I think you know which just good things happen and you're supposed to then be thankful you know and so and then we keep our thanks reserved for the next time something good happens, or we get the thing that we wanted to have. And that makes gratitude very, very conditional, very fleeting, it's going to be so occasional in our lives that we really feel that overwhelming sense of gratitude. What I'm talking about is something really different, which is gratitude from the inside out. It's really a way to orient to life. It's like, it's not contingent on so many things. It's not so conditional. And it's much more robust and resilient in the face of things that don't happen the way that we do which is like i woke up again today wow that's cool um my body can move across the room like that's cool like how do we i can i'm grateful for my breath and maybe the fact that we can breathe is like one of the most amazing things in the whole world unassisted you know COVID taught us a lot of things that's one of them that being able to breathe is just this extraordinary thing and all of life is connected to it but we forget that Our bodies are these extraordinary temples of majestic wonder in every single moment that we're alive. Like you could not possibly be more grateful than to say, look at my body breathing, look at my heart beating, look at all the systems in my body that are working right now. It is amazing until one of them stops working and then we get all pissed off, (laughs) but we weren't appreciating it the whole time it was working. So kind of what I'm saying is, is there a way that gratefulness can really be the way that we orient to life, which is let me notice what's working. Let me notice what's in service of life that I'm usually walking right past or walking right over or thumbing my nose at this thing because it's not enough. You know, can I switch the way that I orient to life, that I orient to life gratefully? So I call it a proactive approach to life versus a reaction to life. And it's it's kind of how we're wired and we are grateful for the little things. We let ourselves be grateful for the little things. And it fills us up. And then Brother David Steindlras, who founded the organization I worked for for 10 years, he says, most famous quote, it's not happiness that makes us grateful, it's gratefulness that makes us happy. If you can't be happy with what you have, then more is not gonna do you.
1: I've been saying that for a long time. If I'm not happy now, then it doesn't matter what I get in the future, I won't be happy. Right on. A friend of mine, I, I used to be a competitive golfer, and a friend of mine became he went down the Buddhist path, and he came back and taught me a little thing on the golf course one time, and it was, it was a, simply a gratitude experience where becoming more aware of what was around me. And Mm. so to block my mind out in certain moments of hitting shots or getting stressed or being upset in the moment, you would just simply listen to the trees rustling. You would listen to the wind. You would listen to the bird chirping. And that was your main focus. And you, you, you became in this moment of saying, I'm so grateful that I'm out here being able to play golf. And right everything else is a bonus and it, the result of the shot doesn't matter because I'm out here in the sun on this beautiful golf course playing golf and it really shifted my, my whole demeanor and everything about it. And so when you're working with individuals, what are you teaching them to kind of hone in on that, that reduced essence of the human experience, if you will?
3: Right. You couldn't say it better. I mean, you just did such a beautiful teaching in what you just said. And thanks to that friend of yours who kind of woke you up to, you know, I think what we're tending to do is block out everything like, okay, I've got to focus. And that means I forget all the things around me instead of maybe all the things around me. And I would say inside me are the nourishment that I need in order to excel right so maybe it's really appreciation rather than rigor sometimes i think we get super rigorous you know with ourselves it's like i've gotta i can't afford to be distracted by what's beautiful and wondrous in this moment because it's gonna take me off my game i don't think that's true i think it's really the people who are most present to everything who really flourish and so I teach people a lot of things. I mean, I think the five principles in the book are really the the kind of starting ground for everything, which really is, there's this way of, um, life as a gift greet each moment. Gratefully, you're always receiving, you don't need to wait for anything to receive. That's the first principle. Life as a gift you're receiving in every single moment. What are you receiving? That's in service of life. You could just go on and on and on. Cause it's, it's extraordinary. Second one is everything is surprise. When you open to wonder, opportunities abound, right? So you don't know what's going to happen. It's all mysterious. So open open to wonder and delight and curiosity, you know, and then opportunities abound for appreciating that. The ordinary is extraordinary. When you take nothing for granted, life is abundant. That's where you were, David, with this thing of like, okay, why is more going to make me feel happier when I can't be happy with what I already have? And I'm not, put your perspectacles on, put your perspectacles on. It's like, you know, get grateful for what's there for the roller board. You know, it's like, and that's all it takes is one switch. It's the teeniest switch. And then the fourth one is appreciation is generative. That's a really powerful one, which means when you tend what you value, what you value thrives. If you're not tending to the things you care about, why are you disappointed that your life isn't thriving? Tending is an active thing. And then the last one is love is transformative. So those are the five principles and they really work.
1: It does work. It it comes down to just really, like you say, just being in this, this present state of just appreciation for the simplest of things. And it's incredible when you stack those up over time, how you really do become happier. And we interviewed a gentleman who had... He was on the 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 gratitude gratitude journaling and he was sending out gratitude letters to everyone once a yeah, month yeah. about like that. And he would write a letter to an old college professor or a roommate or a friend, whoever it was, and just saying how grateful he was that they came into his life 20 years ago for whatever. And that was something that he had implemented. And I wrote my first one to my daughter. And I'm curious, are you... Are you documenting these great, are you doing gratitude journals? Are you documenting you, the what you've done over the last 30 years and, and how you've become a, a more at peace person?
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think I love that idea because here's, here's the deal. When the more grateful you are, the more generous you are. Truth. That's truth because people think that, oh, when something generous happens to me, then I'll be grateful. But the truth is if you start out grateful, you're going to be more generous, which means that you get more generous, you know, you get it all back. It's such a powerful cycle. So writing thank you letters, saying thank you a lot to the people who are around you, it creates such a beautiful ripple effect that it just reinforces your own experience of being grateful and being happy. So, you know, I do a lot of that. And I think I also do the, um, I start each day gratefully. That's part of what I try to do. Instead of just inventorying the good things that happened at the end of the day, I try to start each day saying, What am I grateful for before anything has even happened yet? You know, so that it's not contingent on things that happened to me going well. But I think, you know, this is Thanksgiving. It's a great time to basically no holds barred. You know, people feel really, really vulnerable when they express gratitude in some ways. Crack it open and just blow it out. You know, it's like, there's no reason to hold back. It's the most incredible thing in the whole world. And if you wait and notice how different you feel at the end of the day, if you've made a commitment to be really effusively grateful to 12 people in a day that you see, you know, people you take for granted. How many people do we take for granted who are making our lives better? And just blow it out, you know, just lay it on and be real and watch what happens at the end of that
0: day, how you feel differently and how people treat you differently. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, I love that. Our guest is Christine Nelson and her book is Wake Up Grateful, the transformative practice of taking nothing for granted. Mm -hmm. We wish you a very happy Thanksgiving and thank you for showing up here on The Mountain Life and giving us and our listeners all a, a dose of gratitude. I really have appreciated that.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm with you in the mountain life.